everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, and this week I am talking to a very special guest who is in Scotland. Hello, Gemma. Hello, Tina. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yes, I love the accent. I'm so excited. I love accents. You guys know how obsessed I am with accents, so I can't wait. So Gemma is the co-host of a podcast. It's a true crime podcast called Witch Murderer. Tell us yep. a little bit about that, Gemma. So I am a co-host with um, my friend Holly. Uh, we release every week and each week we pick a case based on a certain genre. Recently it was ritualistic murders. In the past it's been matricide, reoffenders, things like that. And we'll pick a case each and we'll speak about it. And then at the end we'll sort of debate which way that we feel we would rather have died it's a little bit macabre. We're very, shall I say, respectful mm -hmm. and everything like that. But there's still a little bit of humour in there because you need to kind of see the humour in all the dark stuff in this world. So um, it's very fun. We have a good time. And you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify and really wherever else you get your podcasts. So check us out if you'd like. Perfect. And it's a fun podcast because you get the intriguing interesting true crime story with and you guys are really funny the back and forth that you have you're very witty very thank you you are it's real quick-witted and it's a very enjoyable podcast I really like it thanks very much thank you you're welcome also want to thank all of my listeners who have been sending me in stories I want you all to know that I will eventually get around to doing the stories it's kind of scary how many medical professional true crime stories there are so mm. and I've got some really good ones that'll be coming down the road so if you've sent me an idea and I just haven't heard it yet keep listening I promise we'll get to it also if you don't mind just go on to wherever you listen to your podcast and write review and subscribe it just kind of helps us get up in the ratings and make make it to where people can find our little podcast and we appreciate it right Gemma oh yeah we love all those people that rate and review yeah it's You're our favorite people ever <laughs> it helps us you know our little you know independent podcasts that where we are just trying to entertain people and for me my podcast now obviously I'm a nurse and you're a nurse right Gemma yes that's correct yeah. we didn't even talk about that what kind of nurse are you no so I'm a mental health nurse trained um I've worked in different sections but I've longest I've worked the longest in uh, dementia care um I work in dementia care at the moment specializing in complex uh, hospital care men that can't really be housed at home or in nursing homes or anything like that so they stay with us challenging very rewarding love what I do awesome. and yeah love being a nurse yeah and so for me I, I like doing the good nurse bad nurse podcast because I feel like it helps to bring the medical profession together all the different people from different areas and we kind of get united in this sometimes medical professionals can get against each other I don't think mm -hmm. it's it's not necessarily on purpose. It just happens when you're in an intense environment and you want somebody to blame for the frustration. So this is just a sort of a lighthearted way for me to kind of have a little bit of a way to entertain people at the same time, help and maybe educate and just bring people together. Yeah, I definitely noticed that when I've been listening to your episodes, Tina, just the camaraderie that you feel with uh, the person that you're uh, co-hosting that week with. It's, it's brilliant. It really uh, is really positive for the, the profession, I think. Thank you. You're welcome. On that note, 
you said you had the mental health history. So there was a news mm -hmm. story that I sent you that's kind of in the news right now in Scotland. Tell yes. us a little bit about that. Uh, so it was the end of November and I heard due to the fact that I used to work at the hospital, it's called Ailsa Hospital in Ayr, that there was a stabbing at the hospital between a, possibly an outpatient previously known to services, mental health services, and a healthcare support worker at the hospital. The the nurse was able to go to another ward uh, with the knife still in her side, and she was uh, then taken to a general hospital just up the road. Luckily enough, that's five minutes up the road, so she was seen really quickly, and she's all fine now. She's on the mend. Good. But the whole hospital was on lockdown. No one was allowed to leave. Visitors, patients, staff, they were all had to stay in the hospital until the police sort of cleared them and was able to let them go. As far as I'm aware, the... If the patient has been found, they've not released it to the media. And if she has a mental health sort of background, then that's possibly likely that they're not going to release it to the media. Yeah. But I can't see anything uh, online that says, you know, who she is or, or why she did it. But I believe that she was looking for a specific staff member in particular mm -hmm. and couldn't find that staff member. And therefore, this person was just in their own place at the wrong time. It it's interesting to me that this woman was able to get a knife in a hospital. Yeah, so if she was, I don't think she was an inpatient. I think she was an outpatient. Oh. So I think that she went to the hospital from her house, possibly with a knife then, because there wasn't any sort of um, news stories that say that it was from a specific ward. They would usually do like sort of head counts to make sure everyone was there. So I think that she... Uh, would have got it from her home. If she was an inpatient, then she was probably assessed wrongly, probably assessed, um, let out on pass, mm. and then uh, was able to get a knife and then bring it back to the hospital. Ah. Unfortunately with us, we, we do a lot of positive risk taking, and sometimes those risks end up with someone getting hurt. Yeah, we've talked about workplace violence before and mm -hmm. the healthcare professionals, their safety and how... There's such a fine line sometimes between giving people their freedom and then risking the lives of the healthcare workers. It's so, yes. it's a difficult situation sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, mental health in particular, it's it's even more so. You'd be amazed at the the level of aggression and and places that you wouldn't even think. Uh, elderly mental health in particular, you would get a um, a large number, even more so than you would and sort of 18 to 65 mental health. Mm -hmm. Due to the dementia, due to the distress and due to the confusion, of course, we're able to sort of manage that really well, but it doesn't make it any easier on the nurses that are having to deal with that day to day. No, no, mm -hmm. it can be very scary. I used to work on yeah. a, a senior behavioral health unit here. Some of the, all, it, all of the patients were over, I believe it was 55. It was either 55 or 65, I think it was 55, but they all had either dementia, Alzheimer's, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And you'd be surprised how strong an elderly person can be. Oh, yeah. When that adrenaline's going. Yeah. When they're mm -hmm. confused, it's scary. And you're trying to go to take... I was a nursing assistant at the time. I was in nursing school and trying to take vitals on them and or yeah. clean them up, you know, they're because they're incontinent. Mm -hmm. But they don't understand what you're doing. And, yes. you know, they feel threatened. It's just, it's not an easy situation. 
No. And dementia is such a horrible illness. It's yeah. just such a heartbreaking thing to watch, especially in situations like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so that was our in the news story. So we have a doozy of a bad nurse story this week. Oh, that's for sure. That's for sure. <laughs> the more I read on this case, the more I couldn't believe. Honestly, it was so interesting. I know. And it involves three nurses, one from Australia, one mm-hmm. from Scotland, and one from England. Am I yes. getting that right? That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. And it happened back in 1996. A woman by the name of Yvonne Guilford. Mm-hmm. She was born in 1941 and grew up on a farm in Jamestown, South Australia. And she became a nurse at 28 and worked in New Zealand and then moved to London in 1973, then Johannesburg, South Africa in 1976. Mm -hmm. And she worked in various hospitals in the city for 20 years and then accepted a new job in Dahran. Yeah. In 1996. Yes. So she moved to Saudi Arabia. Yeah. So apparently when I was looking into this, nurses could move there and get jobs and make a lot of money. Yeah, I think all the money they would make would be tax free. Um, I think that was the main thing. So I think that she was earning around about 21,000 UK pounds at the time, tax free, mm-hmm. um, which for 1996 was, was very lucrative. I believe that she went there with the purpose of making enough money so she could retire. Mm. And then she wanted to start her own cake decorating business in Australia. So, yeah, I think a lot of nurses would move there to to try and make as much money as they could, possibly with the idea of then going traveling afterwards or just taking some time off, which sounds brilliant in my book, really. Yeah, I think so, too. I think it sounded like a great idea at the time. Mm. And so I would imagine as a nurse, you move to Saudi Arabia and who are going to be people that you're going to connect with, with the other nurses. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Especially if it's other nurses that have moved there. Mm -hmm. So you're all in the sort of same situation. You're in similar situations. You all speak English uh, Mm -hmm. as your first language. So she befriended two nurses by the name of Deborah Perry and Lucy McLaughlin. Mm -hmm. And Deborah was the one that was from London. Yes. Lucy was from Scotland. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I believe Deborah had previously, I think she'd nursed members of the royal family um, at a hospital in London before moving to Saudi Arabia in 1996. Wow. She'd had a fatal car accident in 1989. And before that, she'd lost her mother and her father and her brother, both very, all very tragically. Mm. So she sort of moved to Saudi in, a, in an attempt to start over her life. And just have a a fresh start, really. And then that's where she met Yvonne and Lucy. Okay. And just to sort of give a little background of what happened to Yvonne. Mm -hmm. So she was last seen on the evening of December the 11th. And the story is that she and Deborah and Lucy had an early Christmas party. Yes. In her bedroom. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing we know, she didn't report for work the next morning. So guards were sent to her bedroom to investigate and found her dead. Yep. She had been uh, stabbed 13 times Mm -hmm. and also suffocated with her own pillow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then by the next week, they had arrested 
Deborah Perry and Lucy McLaughlin on suspicion of murder because yes. they had used her bank card or somebody had. Yes. One of the two of those. One of them. And I believe Lucy had a, a history of doing this. She had been fired from a hospital in Dundee mm-hmm. after allegedly using a patient's bank card to withdraw to withdraw money. And she then sent false references to the hospital in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and that's what eventually got her the job. Um, so, yeah, Lucy had a, a history of, of using other people's bank cards and getting money from them. And definitely that behavior is obviously not good, but it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily make you a murderer, I guess. No, yeah, exactly. And that seemed to be the only evidence that they really had at that mm-hmm. time. Yes. So several days after the arrest, Deborah Perry mm-hmm. confessed to being in, and I don't know why it says confessed, it's kind of a weird way to word that, but to to being in a relationship with Yvonne Guilford. Yes. So uh-huh. she, she claimed that they were in a relationship. And then she said that she attacked her after they got in an argument and Lucy McLaughlin agreed that that's the way that it happened. Mm-hmm. And this is in Saudi Arabia with Saudi Arabia officials. Yes, and their laws. And they are, and they are the consequences as well from them which are for one thing never going to be kind toward women no no never never (laughs) sure yeah never going to be forgiving toward women but sometimes things that we would consider not as serious you could lose your life over so yeah they quickly become serious there yeah not a good country to go to and decide to do something illegal no definitely not so apparently they admit that this happened and they tell this big elaborate story of how it happened and Mm -hmm. then after they confess they say that they had been intimidated and they were deprived of sleep and that they were subjected to threats of sexual violence in order to coerce them into signing the confession yeah i mean that's horrendous can you imagine you know you're in that situation you're in a country that you don't know Mm -hmm. you're in a very dangerous situation and and this is your only way out is to is to sign this confession. Right. Or else, yeah, who knows what's going to happen to you. And that's what they're saying happened. And mm-hmm. I guess UK officials, and at the time the prime minister was Tony Blair, I believe. Yes. So they're looking at this like, wait, you've got two nurses that you have arrested and they may be concerned that they're not exactly being treated fairly mm-hmm. yeah. un- under the Saudi Arabia laws. And, the, and just because they are so incongruent with laws in the UK and other places in the Western world. Yeah. I mean, the way that they were arrested, the way that their trial eventually went is so far removed from how a trial would have happened here. Yeah, that presumption uh, of innocence is gone. It's not there at all. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it happened very quickly. And well, and they had confessed. So I guess to the Saudi Arabia officials, they're looking at this like well, they already said they did it. And, you know, in America, sometimes we get frustrated at our criminal justice system because people who have confessed or they're on video doing something. Yeah. There was a man in Florida who was on video. There was a 12 year old girl who was abducted. She just went missing one day. And in the middle mm-hmm. of the day, the last video that was ever seen of her was this man walking up to her at a car wash. There was just like a CC, you know, video camera. Mm-hmm. And so all you see, and it's so horrifying, but this little 12-year-old girl, she was just walking home 
like from school or from a friend's house to home or something like that. Okay. She did like a little shortcut and you, you see this man walk up, talk to her for a second, take her by the hand and casually leave, like walk oh. out of camera shot. And this the last, and then they end up finding her remains and it was a horrible, horrible story. And what all happened to her was terrible. And so when uh-huh. that man was arrested, people in America were like, that presumption of innocence can be frustrating sometimes when yeah, you just want to go, you have him on video. You don't have to presume he's innocent, but that's the way our criminal justice system works. And if mm-hmm. it doesn't work that way for everybody, you got to play by the rules. Yes, exactly. And rules are different in every country. And mm-hmm. that's what makes this case so, so difficult. Yes, because there's two, two different countries that are so just, in, in, like I said, incongruent with the way that they do they handle these things yes absolutely so the uh, trial was very very swift they did have the confession there were no there was no cross-examination of the two witnesses or any witnesses no forensic evidence lucy mclaughlin was found guilty of manslaughter and was sentenced to eight years imprisonment and 500 lashes 500 lashes i wonder if she actually did have to go through that punishment because that sounds awful you know like 20 years ago i remember this kid did something like he stole something or did i can't remember what he did in in another country and i'm just talking randomly off the top of my head like i do and i usually start sounding like an idiot when i try to do this but <laughs> he had his punishment was to be caned mm-hmm. and i could remember everybody in america being like no this is terrible it's so barbaric and oh, wow wait was that in in america that, that happened or somewhere no else? it was in another country but he was an american so oh, americans see. were just losing their mind over it you know like yeah but you know don't go in another country and go committing crimes if you don't want to be subject to their laws and their consequences yeah well exactly um I, there was a there's a, a island just off the coast of england called the isle of man and they make all their own rules they're sort of like their own sort of governing body but they're still part of the uk mm-hmm. and they still had what they called the the birch which was basically a a long wooden branch that they that they would hit people with and that was a punishment you'd get sentenced to so many lashes of the birch and that wasn't outlawed until i think about the 80s so young children who were getting in trouble with the law that was their punishment they were just getting hit with this branch wow and that was so far removed from what the uk as a whole was experiencing because corporal punishment like that was sort of outlawed in the 60s, I think, here. So 60s, 70s. So they're a little bit far behind. Mm -hmm. Same with capital punishment. They had hanging up until 1993, I think. But no one had ever been subject to hanging, thankfully. They just didn't have it outlawed by then. Yeah, well, and capital punishment is alive and well in the United States. Mm -hmm. And people tend to want to make it a personal thing. Like they think if somebody did something like that to my family member, to my, you know, son, daughter, husband, wife, whatever, you know, you just want, you just want them to die. You don't mm-hmm. want, want them to get, you know, the ultimate punishment. My thing is I researched this a long time ago when I was in college and I started out thinking I believed in the death penalty because mm-hmm. I just, the mindset, you know, you, you, when you grow up hearing something and hearing one side of something, you tend to, you know, it's hard to not have that belief. And then as you get older, you start questioning those things, you know, and mm-hmm. it's healthy, I think, to question your beliefs. Yep. 
so, but I was going to write a paper on the death penalty thinking that I was going to argue the other side. And when I started researching it, I ended up convincing myself to not be for the death penalty. It was kind of weird. That's amazing. Yeah. So I wrote the whole paper on the opposite side that I started out. Well, that's excellent. I like that. So in this case, she, Lucy, you know, she gets her 500 lashes Uh and her eight years, but Deborah Perry was sentenced to she, because she was found guilty of murder, she was sentenced to death. Yes. And I found that really strange because, as far as I'm aware, Yvonne's cause of death was asphyxiation. Mm-hmm. Yes, she had been stabbed 13 times, but she died because of the pillow being uh, smothering, being smothered by the pillow. Yeah. And what I read was it was actually Lucy that smothered her with the pillow. Mm-hmm. And Deborah that stabbed her. Mm-hmm. So with Lucy being found guilty of manslaughter and then Deborah being found guilty of murder, I just don't know how that corresponds to how Yvonne actually died. It doesn't really seem to add up. No. But that's how that happened. And then Deborah's sentence could be commuted to a life sentence if the closest surviving relative of the victim were to agree to accept, quote, blood money payment as was allowed under the Islamic law. Yes. Yes, I read that also. How different that is from anything I'm aware of. I know. And so Yvonne Guilford had a brother Mm -hmm. named Frank, and he agreed to accept this payment. And I don't know, I didn't how much this is. Do you know how much that is? I saw that it was £750,000 and then I asked Siri and it told me it was $943,000 and basically, no, sorry, $943,600 essentially. What? I just wonder where the money came from well i saw that it came from it was raised by a company called british aerospace and then a philanthropist felix dennis who i believe was a publisher and also a writer and they together raised the money and i I suppose for deborah to give and then i saw that and i was just thinking what that i don't really understand that it's just like so far removed from anything i I've ever heard of before like why would British aerospace and a philanthropist and publisher agree to pay this money unless it was somehow for like they considered it a if they didn't believe in a death penalty maybe yeah I think in the British press around this time there was uproar at how Deborah and Lucy um, had been treated they didn't think they had a fair trial there was campaigns set up by the tabloids so the British public at the time were totally against this so I think what maybe happened is that British Aerospace and Felix Dennis they raised this money in order to make sure that Deborah didn't receive the death penalty Mm. so that they could perhaps then look towards another avenue of getting uh, these women home Okay. I think that's probably what happened. Okay, that makes sense. I could see that happening, getting it in the news. And then before you know it, everybody's worried about these nurses who was in, who are in Saudi Arabia and they did get a fair trial and they're being mm-hmm. accused of this and that. But the confession was coerced. And then all of a sudden, the whole world is just behind them. And then this these com- these people come along and pay the the blood money for them. Yes. So, so she had been saved from the death penalty, but there was still... A lot of questions. And then Tony Blair, the prime minister at the time, appealed to King Fod to mm-hmm. 
basically, let's, you know, get the situation settled. Yes. And then in May 1998, he commuted the sentences of both women to 17 months in prison, the time that they had already served. Yeah. With the only conditions being that both were to write him a letter personally thanking him for his clemency. <laughs> And then accept deportation back to the United Kingdom. And I'm like, I think that's brilliant that he did that, but I still get a little bit of, I don't know, almost sexism from that. It's like, you will write me a letter and you will thank me and you will show me gratitude. And I don't mm-hmm. know why that didn't sit right with me because he did a really nice thing, but I think it was more just the order of it. Like, I'm sure yeah. they would have thanked him, but I think it was more that, that he ordered them to do that. I, I don't even know what it means if you order somebody to thank you. It's useless. It's meaningless. Yeah, and yeah, that thank you is moot then. It doesn't have yeah. any uh, weight at all. And yeah, then yeah. they were deported back to Britain after that once they were released. Yes, and then Lucy married. She was engaged at the time and she got married. And I guess she had at some point called Yvonne's brother, Frank, a... I don't know what I can say on my own podcast. because (laughs) It's considered a clean podcast, so I don't want to break the rules and get kicked off of iTunes. But she called him a name. Yes. And not a very nice name. Yeah. (laughs) Selfish something. Like I said, I don't know if I could say it or not. Um, Mm -hmm. Because he accepted the blood money, but didn't. Did I see where he donated it to a children's charity? Yes, that's correct. He did. He donated the whole sum to a children's charity. So... I think she was very wrong in in calling him those things. She definitely was. And I think she did ultimately apologize for that. And she wanted to meet with him and he was like, no, thank you. Yeah, he didn't want to meet either of them. So I think he fully believed that they were responsible for his sister's death. Yes. And then she was in later on in 2011, she was convicted of credit card fraud again Mm -hmm. and then convicted of theft in 2012 yeah i think she was quite desperate she was struck off the nursing registrar not because of the the trial or anything like that but because of the using the false references to get her job right so that was sort of immediately being struck off from our nursing registrar which is the nmc so yeah i think she struggled i think she had a lot of like bit jobs here and there she did she didn't really have a, a a great career after that and then unfortunately she she passed away in 2014 of a brain hemorrhage um yeah. very suddenly i believe that uh, she was an organ donor and she donated her organs uh, but she had two fairly young children at the time so that's yeah that's a horrible thing for them to go through it was really sad. I mean, she had kind of moved on with her life, regardless, you know, whatever happened mm-hmm. and who did what, whether she was guilty or not. The fact is that she she was free mm-hmm. and she did move on with her life and she did have children. And so it is sad for those children and for her family that she just passed away suddenly. Yeah. Deborah Perry was able to resume her new nursing career mm-hmm. and she continued to say that she had not been in a relationship with Yvonne that she had only said that because she was coerced yeah she said said she had no involvement whatsoever with the murder yep and even in 2012 she called for Yvonne's body to be exhumed and wanted it to be subjected to forensic techniques that were not available at the time of her death mm-hmm. so she's I guess she's thinking if they were somehow able to exhume the body then maybe 
the lack of evidence would clear her. I'm not sure how she thinks that would clear her or if they found other DNA or I don't know. Maybe. I'm not sure. I mean, things have obviously moved on quite a bit since 1996 and maybe they would be able to find something um, that would tell a completely different narrative. However, I don't think that's as common as maybe maybe people think. You know, these these cases where that does happen, they're, they're in their news for a reason because they don't happen that often. So she's maybe clinging to that. I also, I read that she she believed that she was manipulated by Lucy. Hmm. She believed that, that she, had, that Deborah had said to Lucy that she would stick by her, but that Lucy stitched her up. So I'm not entirely sure what to read into that. You know, if they were involved in the murder, if if maybe Yvonne thought that Lucy was involved and she was just helping her, and she, but really they both were clueless as to what actually happened. But mm-hmm. Deborah obviously got the tougher sentence and she was nearly put to death. So I can understand why she would be not thinking too kindly if, if she didn't believe that she was doing anything wrong and she was just supporting Lucy. Well, there was a book that was published in 1999 about the case. Right. It was called Mercy by Mick O'Donnell, which mm-hmm. is one of Australia's leading investigative journalists at the time. And he did extensive investigating on this case and interviewed everyone involved and really wanted to figure out, really get to the bottom of it for himself and to to just get the the story out there and basically what he said is too many of their facts don't don't stack up yep and he said that a danish nurse who had not been willing to talk to journalists before talked to him and confirmed to mick o'donnell the author that she had seen lucy mclaughlin in the early morning of the murder after the right. murder washing clothes in the communal laundry and acting strangely. Oh. And the women's confession, when they gave the confession initially, referred to washing blood off clothes. Ah, okay. So it was included in their confession something that actually did happen. Exactly. So Ah. that sort of helps corroborate the initial confession. Deborah Perry had a hairdresser that confirmed that lumps of hair had been pulled from her head after the murder. Right. Uh Friends said they had seen scratches on her forearms consistent with marks made by fingernails. Some say Deborah Perry rang the casualty department to ask about Yvonne Guilford even before the body had been discovered. Oh, well, that's, I mean, that's very incriminating, but it's also quite strange. Why would you mm-hmm. phone the hospital if you knew that she was dead? All right. <laughs> um. But yeah, maybe maybe that's the case that they they would bring you know victims to the hospital you know straight away. So that might be yeah, the case. Yeah, I guess there was also a bruise on Deborah Perry's hip that she says was from a was from a fall in the desert in the company of her friend. But when and this friend when he was interviewed by Mick O'Donnell, mm-hmm. he said that it, that never happened. Right. So there's a lot of stuff here that are. Isn't looking too great for the the women now. Yeah, because whenever Deborah Perry was given the confession or the two women were given the confession of what happened, they said that Deborah Perry fell over a table during the struggle. Ah, okay. So again, that matches up to the confession, something that actually did happen and that there's evidence of. Mm -hmm. And Mick O'Donnell that wrote this book, he actually says that he really agonized over telling his views of whether he believed they were guilty because he 
I guess when he was talking to the family members of the women, he maybe he just developed sort of a rapport with them. And he was sort of not that he told them he was going to lean to one side or the other. But I think they probably were hopeful that it, in the end, it would show that they didn't do it. Uh-huh. But he just couldn't allow himself to say that after he saw and heard all of the, the different interviews and got all sides of the story. He said it was just impossible for him to not. And he, and he said that he thinks that in the end, if he had not given his opinion about it, it would have been a cop out right. to just sort of like, no, I'm not going to say what I think after he's, I mean, if, if he has interviewed all these people and he has all this evidence, if he can't give an opinion who can you know exactly yeah wow that sounds like a really interesting book i'd really like to read that actually yeah i had come across um another few um sort of evidence that maybe exonerates them maybe just i mean i I can't say either way where i stand to be fair there's there's a lot of evidence for deborah and lucy being guilty and there's there's some evidence that's maybe like oh i'm not entirely sure but i just Mm -hmm. found it really interesting perhaps it shows a supposed cover-up between the the Saudi government. Mm-hmm. There are there were similarities between um, Avon's death and another um, murder of another nurse at the mm. same complex called. Uh, she was called Liberty de Guzman. Her husband eventually was arrested for the murder, but he killed himself in custody, allegedly by repeatedly banging his head against the wash basin in his cell. I mean, that that sounds like a horrible way to to go, but then also yeah. could maybe could maybe mean that he didn't actually kill himself because I don't know how yeah. you would do that. It seems like you would pass out before you die. Yeah. Before you would could even hurt yourself bad enough th- to die. Uh-huh. So but I don't know. Perhaps there's some conspiracy going on there. <laughs> um, the case had been kept really quiet by the authorities and there's still not much really online. I tried to research a little bit more about it, but I really couldn't see much about it at all. I did see that there was a nurse from the facility called Sharon Mercula, who um, was interviewed on a TV program saying that both Yvonne and Liberty, this other woman who was murdered, had been harassed by the security guards for a few weeks leading up to their deaths. And that both of them were found by the same security guards in their rooms. And they, they had both received, Yvonne and Liberty had received all of their pay before they were murdered, which apparently wasn't very common. There was a lot of difficulties in, in getting their pay on time at this facility. Mm-hmm. So it was quite suspicious that they all, Yvonne and Liberty, had been able to get their pay on time. I don't know if that proves anything, if that's just interesting sort of facts. Yeah. But yeah, it's just another twist in this crazy case, really. It is. I just kept it on is finding a crazy case. It really is, yeah. Absolutely. It's just so many different angles and so many different lives were ruined, you know, by this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Now, Deborah, in an interview that she did in 2012, she told a news organization that she wanted Yvonne's, well, I said that, that she wanted her uh, body exhumed, but she mm-hmm. also said that she had done nothing wrong and that Lucy is the one that has to live with her conscience. That's what she She said, I've done nothing wrong. Lucy's the one that has to live with her conscience. Ooh. She said, I... I'm thinking of ways to prove my innocence because I know I've done nothing. Wow. So she really kind of threw, you know, Lucy under the bus Mm -hmm. big time there. 
She really did. And, and basically, it goes from being a case of we didn't do anything wrong. We we didn't have anything to do this. We just happened to be a friend of hers. And we, yeah, we stole her credit card, but that's it. It's just a coincidence. And it went from that to being, oh, she did it. Yeah. So now she's admitting that she believes her friend capable of this. And it to me, that's very incriminating. It is. It is. I think it sort of infers that they both know more. Mm-hmm than they were letting on yeah yeah absolutely but yeah as you say lots of life lots of lives ruined all over yeah that part about Yvonne wanting to retire and open up her cake decorating cake decorating business just really got me because she just she just wanted a a simple a simple life really I know it's just to think about her you know working two decades over two decades as a nurse well let's say longer because i was in the 70s 80s not yeah over two decades mm-hmm. as a nurse and then just getting to a point where she's just wanting to settle in to her later years yep and then that was all just taken away from her yeah yeah and i heard she was a really good nurse like well i read that she was a really good nurse she uh, she was head nurse at um one of the surgery units when she worked in south africa the ward ran like clockwork it ran really well she was a really good boss so i mm-hmm. think she would have been really good at her job as well yeah it sounds like it yeah well i guess that's wrapped up there <laughs> this is i'm gonna start calling this awkward transition time because <laughs> every know. week i always struggle how to get from one story to like, um, okay, now we're going to stop talking about that and start talking about this. Yeah, <laughs> we, we struggle with that too. We end we end up saying the same things each time. If if one person's talking or, or saying their case, the other person will go, that was a good one. And then the other person goes, thank you. And then that's how we end it every time. And it's like, we need to come up with a different way to end this each time. Oh. <laughs> <clears throat> it's funny how this, you know, it's the the podcast is conversational and it's, you know, it's supposed to be relaxed and it is. Yeah. It's very relaxed. I mean, I, I I don't I would never want it to be scripted or anything like that. But there are these moments in which you kind of have to be like, OK, we're pivoting here. We're going from this to that. And I don't. So I just decide that's just sort of my personality. I just kind of say things out loud. I don't like having awkward moments. So I'm like, I'm just going to start talking about this. I can't handle it. (laughs) The good thing is you can edit most of it out in post-production. So it's fine. (laughs) You can. You can. You can just edit. Editing does help. And I I don't edit a ton of mine just because I don't have time because I do work full time at the hospital. Oh, yeah, of course. I do this. Yeah. And I do this whole thing myself. So. I don't do a whole lot of editing. I edit out my uh, some of my ums because it drives me crazy when I hear myself back. Well, tell me about it. I'm the same with my ums <laughs> and my likes and my airs. It's just a nightmare. <laughs> I, I start realizing all the things that I say and I, I get on my, my nerves when I'm listening to myself and editing. I'm just like, stop doing that. It's so I annoying. Oh, I know. I'm so <laughs> with you. I'm so with you. So anyway, all of that to say, our good nurse story this week yes. is an amazing. She's incredible. She's an absolute inspiration. Mm-hmm. So she is from Australia. Two Australian nurses this week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> I think when I was looking for a Scotland nurse, it just so happened that that nurse had originally been from Australia. Yep. And then when I was just looking for, you know, I was just looking for like hero nurses or nurses who've done amazing things, you know, things like that. 
this nurse just happened to come up and I was like, oh, wow, she is awesome. She's amazing. So this is Lieutenant Colonel Vivian Statham. Mm -hmm. So she's known by her maiden name, Vivian Bullwinkle. Brilliant name. Yeah, I love it. It's the best name ever. So good. (laughs) (laughs) Especially considering what she did. So she was the sole survivor of the Banka Island Massacre of 1942. Yep. So Japanese soldiers shot the survivors of a shipwreck south of Singapore. I know. She, I think that she was, she enlisted during World War Two, and she um, was in the Australian Army Service and she was um, based in Singapore and then Singapore got inv- invaded by Japanese troops so they had to retreat to the sea and then the ship got bombed also mm. by Japanese troops, so... Yeah, she was, her story, yeah, we're just getting into it now, but yeah, there were, I think there were 65 other nurses on board the ship, as well as injured soldiers and civilians. Yeah. And she was one of them. I thought it was interesting for what she ends up doing, She that she had been rejected from the Royal Australian Air Force for having flat feet. I couldn't believe it when I said that, but <laughs> but then I've heard that so many times about people mm-hmm. not getting into the, the army or the Air Force or whatever because of these um, flat feet. Um, I know, what is up with that? And then I did a little bit of research on that as well, just because I'd seen it so many times and I just wanted to see for sure what it was. But they say that they don't do it anymore, people with flat feet, as long as they're not plagued by pain or difficulty in walking or anything like that, they're they're able to be in the army or any other sort of... So they're not discriminated against No, the flat feet people are no longer discriminated against. (laughs) But beforehand it was because they thought they wouldn't be able to walk as far so they wouldn't be able to be in the infantry that they would possibly uh, slow down their other fellow soldiers because of not being able to keep up physically due to their flat feet so Hmm. yeah she was originally rejected by i think it was the air force as you said for having flat feet but the army took her on and thank goodness they did because i don't know what they would have done without her yeah, so she was among 65 nurses who were evacuated aboard the SS Viner Brook. Mm-hmm. And then that sunk four days later yeah. after being torpedoed. And she drifted at sea for many hours, clinging to a lifeboat before she and 21 other nurses made it ashore to Banka Island with other survivors. Yep. And of course, what do they do but they begin tending the wounded? And of course they do. The group decided. Yeah, and then they decided to surrender to the Japanese. Yeah, I think I think they thought maybe if they surrendered, they would be able to get, you know, some sort of mercy. Yeah. But unfortunately, Japanese soldiers, they returned to the beach and um, they ordered the nurses to walk from the beach into the sea until they were waist deep. And then they began shooting at them. Yeah. They, they shot at the nurses and I believe all of them died apart from Vivian. She was uh, shot through the torso and she fell into the water, but she didn't lose consciousness. Yeah, and it says she feigned death and then emerged from the heavily bloodstained water and then went on up onto the beach. Yep. Um, I have a quote from her, which I just thought was amazing. And it was, the waves brought me back onto the edge of the water. I lay there 10 minutes and everything seemed quiet. I sat up and looked around and there was no sign of anybody. Then I got up and went into the jungle and lay down and either slept or was unconscious for a couple of days. Mm. 
I saw where it says that she hid for 12 days in the jungle. Yes. While while caring for wounded British soldiers before she attempted again to surrender to the Japanese, which what? I know, I know. But then I think (laughs) they thought that they were going to die on that beach anyway. So they might as well try. Yeah. And yeah, so she tended to um, Private Kingsley, an English soldier. He had been one of the wounded soldiers that were um, on the ship and they were on the beach. Uh, the Japanese had, had stabbed all the wounded uh, soldiers, but Kingsley, he had been stabbed in the middle of the chest and the blade had missed vital organs and he had managed to crawl into the jungle. So he's pretty amazing as well. I mean, that's mm-hmm. unbelievable. But all the rest of the wounded soldiers, they were killed. So yeah, they were the sole survivors of that that part. And then she was a prisoner of war for more than three years. Yeah. So when they um when they surrendered to the Japanese again, they they were sent to Coolie Lines. I don't know if you if you read that. Basically, it just sounds like a prisoner of war camp where they're made to yeah to work. And she was there for three years. And she was. So she, they still have her nurse's uniform that she wore while she was a prisoner of war. Wow. And it's, and it's now on display at the Australian War Memorial. That's amazing. And do you think she probably would have to have wore that every day the whole time that she was there? I guess they probably didn't give her anything else to wear. Wow, that must have been some sturdy uniforms. <laughs> I mean, ours fall yeah. apart after like a year and we need to get new ones. So, <laughs> And I guess it, it probably wasn't getting washed. So, no. you know, washing, I know when I wash my scrubs, I feel, and I, of course you have to wash them on hot water, yeah. hot water. Yeah. So um, I guess maybe the material isn't going to break down as quickly mm-hmm. if it's not getting washed. Yeah, uh-huh, that's true. And she wrote a diary, it said, on Bible pages. Oh, right, okay. Wow. I never read that part. That's amazing. So she wrote a diary for the whole time that she was in the prisoner of war camp. Actually, it said that she hid her nurse's uniform. Maybe she hid it somewhere. Uh, I see, yeah, because I think she knew that if the Japanese found out that she was one of the survivors of the massacre, then they would kill her mm. because she's she's a witness to them just you know, killing innocent civilians, you know, unarmed people. So she had to keep that a secret and basically had to say that she, I think she had to say that she was just, you know, she was in the ocean. She hadn't been on the beach and she had to hide her, her bullet wound as well. So she had to tend to her own wound in secret um, so that the Japanese wouldn't know that she had been one of the ones that they had shot. Yeah, that's it said that she only weighed, only weighed 25 kilograms when she was released. Wow. And she... Received the Royal Red Cross Florence Nightingale Medal Award in 1947. Amazing. Which uh, hopefully that's the highest award you can receive because she deserves it for sure. Yeah, I think she also got an Order of Australia Award, which sounds pretty prestigious too. So she got quite Mm. a few medals. Uh, She was well deserving of them all, I'm sure. Yes. Yep. And when when they were released, um, she... She dedicated the rest of her life to nursing, raising funds and awareness for the victims of the Bang- Banga Island massacre. And she was also president of the Australian College of Nursing from mm. 1973 to 1974. Yeah, and you know, she was responsible for the introduction of the nurse aid role. Really? That's that's what I had read, that she was the one that I guess sort of initiated that, having a nurse aide 
so, you know, th- that level of care so that nurses could provide better care. Well, that's incredible because I don't know where I would be without the nurse aides or the nursing assistants yeah. that we call them here. Yeah. Yes. They're invaluable. We call them nursing assistants here too. Okay. And we have certified nursing assistants who go through a little extra training and get actually certified. And then there are some that are just nurses aides who aren't certified. Okay. So most hospitals, I, th- I think, have certified nurses aides and they're some of them are able to do quite a lot, and they have a lot of responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that they are invaluable. Oh, for sure. To the whole healthcare team. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Wow. Well, thank you very much, Vivian. Definitely, you've yes. changed the sort of whole way of nursing here. And I love the picture of her and that big nurse's cap that she has on. Yes, did you see I that? did. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, sometimes I wish that we still had that sort of um, prestige in the uniform, you know, uh, but then mm-hmm. I could never be bothered doing that every day. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> once in a while. like a lot. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes when you hear the stories of, um, you know, old nursing and I don't know if you have it you know, in America, the the matrons and the old matrons and the way that they would run wards and things like that. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't have, you know, a bed sheet out of place. Everything had to be very tight and strict and you wouldn't dare cross the, the matrons. So um, it's a different time, but I always like those stories. Yeah, yeah, I do too. I love seeing pictures of nurses from, you know, in that era and I love watching Call the Midwife oh my goodness oh it's such a good show I've uh, not watched it in a long time oh it's the best it's so good me and my mum would watch it and she would always forget the name of it so it ended up being a running joke she would go shall we watch text the midwife shall we watch email the midwife and it just (laughs) turned into this running joke because she could never remember the name of the show but yeah it was really good just call the midwife (laughs) (laughs) I think one time it was even shall we watch snapchat the midwife (laughs) just turned into a bit of ridiculous there well I guess it's awkward transition to the end of the show time yes i think so (laughs) oh it's been so fun i really enjoyed myself tina this was great i appreciate it Gemma. maybe we can do it again sometime that'd be great i'd like that well you guys have an awesome week and thank you so much Gemma. and thank you witch murderer for letting us borrow Gemma for the week (laughs) we really appreciate it and you guys i just want to remind you that even if you're a bad girl or a boy, please be a good nurse. <laughs>